Hi, and welcome to Alder Pod number 15. This is chapter 13 of the Alder's Gate, Initiation Rites. The Order of the Asp had arranged themselves in a tight circle to the slight west of a series of mountains that, according to the map Brick now carried for Gowan, were known as the Purney Rise. At first, Brick thought it was simply drier here than in Bell, where the land was higher and home to more grasses and cacti, as well as occasional northern breezes. But after a few more turns, the sand and rocks began to flush with green. Swaying grasses and flowers appeared, clustered together with red, gold, and magenta, streaking the landscape like paint. Gods, but Brick had no idea life could blossom from seemingly nothing. He stood by Gowan, just on the edge of the circle, contemplating his purpose today. He couldn't see over the backs and heads of the other knights, but he knew Mesmer Gimble awaited in the middle of the circle, prepared for his initiation already. He hadn't dawdled a tick. In fact, since their capture by the oak and subsequent rescue by the asp, Mesmer had hardly spoken to Brig at all. He only followed Sir Renman around like a shorter, twitchier shadow, and muttered to himself a great deal. Today Brick would make his decision. In a few moments, likely, he would walk into the circle and pledge his oath to the Order of the Asp, and all it entailed. "'There isn't any turning back after this, Brickley,' said Sir Gowan. "'You forsake all other ties, all other pledges, all other oaths.' The red giant of a knight had his hat off, tucked in the crook of his shoulder, and his eyes were focused on the horizon, now blushing pink in the sunset. "'I don't recall I swore any oaths.' Brick replied, sighing. Vel was heavy on his mind and in his heart today. He was to be made a page, and he could not share his joy with anyone. There was a chance Cora was still alive, but Professor, his father, Mr. Gimble, everyone he'd known in Vel was most likely dead. Sure, some had survived, but it wasn't his calling to help them. You swear oaths you don't even know sometimes, said Gowan reaching up to replace his hat and smooth out his long red moustache. And you carry them around with you wherever you go. Brick thought about that. It was still hot, the sun having yet decided to relinquish her heat. He wiped his brow, contemplating the last few days of his life. He never would have imagined such adventures. At last, he said, I'm ready. Brick took a deep breath. Suddenly, his thoughts went surprisingly quiet. He wasn't frightened. He wasn't apprehensive. He looked at the figures of the knights before him and felt, strangely, that this was right. It wasn't the expected path. He was supposed to have gone with the oak, after all, and thank the gods he hadn't. But this was the right path. So he walked purposefully to the center of the circle, the knights and pages parting for him as he moved forward. Mesmer was already sitting cross-legged in the center of the circle, stripped of all clothing save his underbreeches. His skinny arms were limp at his side, and his eyes were closed, his lips pursed in concentration. Brick shivered as Renman approached him. The knight was a priest of sorts, but of a kind Brick had not encountered before. Brick, who had never had any spiritual tuggings that he could recollect, saw a deep power in Renman's eyes that he could not explain nor ignore. It was an intensity that Renman had about him, a constant energy that reminded Brick of low-burning coals. From a distance, you might not be able to tell that they're hot, but close up, you can feel the ripples of heat emanating. Please disrobe, Redman said. 
He was so thin as to be gaunt, his cheeks digging hollow trenches down the sides of his face. He sported no facial hair, and what little he had on his head he kept tied back in a neat knot of grey-brown. Though he was standing in front of the entire retinue, Brick did as he was asked, almost without a second thought. He removed his leather vest and put it on the ground, then removed his breeches, felt first, his undershirt, then his boots. All was left to him were his underbreeches, threadbare as they were. A breeze blew and Brick's skin erupted into chicken flesh. Even the hair on his head seemed to rise with that wind. Renman nodded to him, and then gestured with his hand for him to sit. Brick sat next to Mesmer, who now was also looking straight up at Renman. "'Ritual,' said Renman, clasping his hands behind his back, as was his habit. "'It is not something to be trifled with. You enter into this ritual of your own accord, and if you change your mind, it cannot be undone.' He raised his eyebrows at the two young men, and they both nodded in turn. He completed his thought. "'Except by blood.' Brick felt like he just swallowed a pair of tempering tongs that had been left in the coals too long. "'I am not interested in a catalogue of sins and errors in your life,' Redmond continued. "'That ain't what we're here about. But it's something of a second chance. You honour us by coming into our mysteries, and we honour you by welcoming you aboard. This is a band of friends, of brothers and sisters, and we keep after our own. Understand?' Yeah, said Brick, his voice catching dryly in his throat. Of course, said Mesmer, his round eyes affixed on Renman with unwavering wonder. The priest knight took a pouch from his belt loop and opened it with his fingers. The leather made a soft, shuffling noise, and suddenly it seemed that the world was growing more silent by the tick. With every passing heartbeat, Brick became more and more attuned to his surroundings. The gravel at his feet was more darkly shadowed, the dirt under his fingernails more pronounced. He swore he could smell the sweat on Redmond's body and feel heat coming from him, as if he were his own son. Once you agree to this, my friends, there will be no turning back, not even if you plead for it. Once your oath is made, once the gods hear your promise, you cannot renege. Are you ready for pain? For with the pain, you will grow strong in mind, in body, and in your soul. I'm ready, said Mesmer. Brick paused and said, I'm prepared. After the great collision, nothing in this world was the same. The old religion was forgotten, replaced by a faith of cold stone churches and silent gods who had turned their backs on us. This was false. This religion was a religion of lies. It was no surprise the people turned to the drainists. They had been praying to gods that did not exist. We had all forgotten. But I, I have spent ten years in the desert. I have listened to the stories of the old crones. I have spoken with the tenders at their business. I have tasted the rain. I have smelled the first blood of the hunt spilled on the hot sands. The gods, they have come to me. They have whispered in my ear and directed my steps. We are all but shadows and whispers in their wake, my friends. Shadows and whispers. The knights were muttering among themselves. The light was waning and Brick startled as two strong arms came from behind him, binding his hands together with leather thongs. He struggled, but the hands were persistent and much stronger than even he was. Gawain, he thought. Then he was blindfolded. Will you take the oath? 
last remnant. If you take the oath, repeat my words. First, the line of queens, to protect, to serve, and to obey. May our actions make our ancestors proud. They repeated. Renman cleared his throat. <laughs> That's the arbitrary part. But I've taken it upon myself to amend a bit and expand. The drainists have worked very hard to erase the line between ourselves and the earth, the moon, the stars. But we, of the order of the asp, we do not forget. So repeat after me. My oath is to the moons, to the maidens of the dark, he said. Brick and Mesmer repeated, just as something cold was poured down their backs. To the sun, her glorious light to shine and keep us warm. They repeated the words, but this time Brick felt something sear through the middle of his back, like being branded with a hot poker. He gritted his teeth, but did not cry out. To the stars, the children of the night, who reveal their mysteries to no one. Brick's breath was coming in ragged gasps, but he managed the words, his lips numb from the cold, though he knew he was sweating over every inch of his skin. To the trees, the maple, the ash, and the alder, who bleed for us. The words came out of his mouth, though Brick could not remember forming them, he was too frightened. His tongue suddenly felt as if it were covered in sand, its weight too heavy in his own mouth. He had no time to protest, no thoughts left in his mind. No, there was no other world than the one he was in, an endless sea of pain. As the knife sliced across both of his arms, right above his biceps, he scarcely felt it. He was leaving his body, drifting away. And to the waters, the sea and the river, who cleanse us, who welcome us, and who guide us to our final resting place. Brick finished the oath, and a hot sensation began to suffuse down his body, moving from his head to his stomach to his feet. He was forced down on his knees now, and he gave no protest. There was a bell tolling somewhere, like the one in Vell they used to tell the turns. Each gong was louder and longer than the last, the sound threatening to shatter his ears altogether. It was worse than having his near ear next to an anvil, a punishment his father used to give him on occasion for impertinence. Something was brought to his lips, a cool flask, and he drank greedily. But it tasted sour, then spicy at the end. As it, as it hit his stomach, it was as if he had drank molten metal. He cried out as his stomach lurched, but he could not throw up the drink. His heart pounded in his throat threatening to explode from his chest altogether. He fell face down into the gravel, expecting to feel the sharp impact, but instead he kept sinking. He sank past knowledge, past understanding, past consciousness, floated down until he was nothing more than a grain of sand in the whole desert, a speck of dust with no name. There was sun on his face, warm and even. He could tell it was sunlight, though he had not yet opened his eyes. His body was pleasantly warm, as if he'd just taken a long nap in a cozy bed by the hearth. But even before he looked for himself, he knew, on some new level, that he was outside. It was the way the air tasted as he breathed it in, sweet on the back of his throat, tinged with honey. Opening his eyes at last, Brick blinked back the bright green above his head, a canopy of leaves and light, dappled and dazzling to look on. Such trees and branches, gods, he had never seen them before. He had never known they could grow so tall. 
As he became more aware of his body, he regarded the trees, their intertwining limbs strangely reminiscent of lovers, legs and arms together with no beginning or end. The one alder in Vel was certainly impressive, but it wasn't like this. Vel's was regal by even Queensland standards, and no small thanks to Professor, but he had never seen so many trees together. A wind swirled down from the branches above him, stirring the hair on his face, on his chest and arms, and down the rise of his pubic area. He was, in fact, completely naked. But he was unashamed. He felt somehow that clothing would make little sense in a place such as this. He wasn't sure how long he stayed there, but he watched as the skies lightened behind the canopy and then darkened. The moons made their way across his line of vision. The stars came out, winking at him playfully, and then they were gone. Morning came, gray turned to darkest azure, and then to orange, pink, white, and then blue. Then, something stirred that was not part of the rhythm of the trees. It was not green, not growing. Rick turned over to his belly, feeling the soft moss under him whisper against his chest, soft and welcoming. Though the sound had alerted him, he could not see anything yet, other than the endless trunks of the trees, darkened as if, as if from recent rain. In the trunks he could see faces in the knots, frozen faces, without expression. Up above, the sky was bright blue, and the air was filled with the trilling of birds, the buzzing of bees, and the sweet, sick slant of flowers. And above it all, something else, too. Something animal. She came into view then, walking aside a ten-point stag with red-black fur. Her hair was the color of walnuts, and it curled delicately, falling down her back in corkscrews. Though her face was dark, it was of such a rich color as to be more than simply from exposure to the sun. Though she had the look of one of the Soderan races. Her eyes were almond-shaped, deep pools of brown. For clothing, she wore just a simple brown dress made of linen, and soft slippers on her feet. And yet she looked to be some sort of queen. "'Welcome,' said a voice, though the woman did not open her mouth to speak. The voice was neither male nor female, but the, th the thought struck Brick that perhaps it was the stag that was speaking to him. Indeed, the creature regarded him with his liquid black eyes, running over with the same intensity he had noticed before in Renman. "'Thank you, I think,' said Brick, standing a little more fully. He had been crouched before, but as he straightened he felt as if perhaps he should be bowing before the couple. "'Where am I welcome to, exactly?' he asked. "'In between.' "'Between what?' The woman tilted her head and smiled a moment, a flicker across her features. But she did not speak. Again it was the voice. "'Between here and there.' Brick could have said something glib, perhaps in another world. But at the moment it seemed impossible. The answer, whomever had been from, seemed to make perfect sense to him. There was before, and there was after, continued the voice. But there is a space between, where neither has it passed, nor has it ended. That is where we now stand. I see, said Brick. And for the moment, anyway, he believed he truly did. The stag lowered his horns, for a moment looking as if he wanted to challenge Brick. He was acutely aware of his nakedness then, the ability of those horns to gore directly through his skin and into the soft organs beneath his belly. 
Who are you? he asked. I'm the wood, said the woman, speaking in her own voice, soft and full of whispers. The wood of the old world, before the collision, before the moon became twain. Brick took a few steps toward her. He swatted at it as a bee as it came near his face. You see my trees, she asked, gesturing to the wood around them. Do you recognize them? Do you know them? Brick squinted. They seemed utterly unfamiliar to him, most of them, but every once in a while he caught a glimpse of something, a branch, a tree, a catkin. Alders, he said. Some of those are alder trees. The Alders Gate, the woman continued. It is the point of connection between the new and old worlds, the place that keeps us separated. And with good reason, Brickley. How do you know my name, he asked. He knew he had not told her. She smiled. You did not speak it, but I know your name, as I think you know mine. <laughs> but I don't, that's for sure. I have no idea what in hell you're talking about, lady, but I'd appreciate it if you were a little clearer, Brick said. The woman sighed, and Brick could tell he had frustrated her. She leaned forward on, and crossed her hands over one over the other. The elders, they are important, she said. You need to protect them, Brick. You need to learn how to protect them. You will have help, of course, but if you don't protect them, the veil will tear, and all will be lost. The veil? The veil, she repeated. Help? he asked. What do you mean, help? You have friends, great and small, dark and light. You know them by name, and some you do not know yet. But they will help you, whether they know it or not. If the Aldersgate fails... She paused, a distressed note to her voice, and then a sound like leaves in the air. When the moon split, the veil descended, and we were protected, all of us. But it cannot last forever. Brick was getting impatient. He was reminded suddenly of Cora's quarrelsome nature, and her ability to rattle off for a few good ticks without even noticing he had stopped listening. And with that memory, he suddenly felt the loss of her. He felt how much he had missed her, and it was overwhelming, like an unexpected gust of wind. The stag was pawing against the ground now, snorting through his nose. How do I get back? Brick asked. He was fighting tears, and there was a stitch in his side. You already are, she said, as the stag charged. Sir Gawain stood over him, and the morning light was rising up over the hillside, casting an eerie orange and pink glow on the world. Brick's entire body was a sea of pain. The aching came over him in waves, persistent and without dissipating. Up you go, said Gawain putting his huge hands under Brick's armpits and hoisting him to his feet. He collapsed as soon as Gowan let go. You were a puppet without strings, joked the knight, reaching down again to help Brick stand. This time, he did not let go, but let him lean his full weight on him. I feel awful, said Brick. The sun was so bright it caused his eyes to tear profusely. The world was a blur of light and sand, the wind already hot in his face. I... I'd be lying if I told you you looked otherwise. Brick was just staring, starting to become aware of his body again, aside from the pain. He could locate pain in more specific areas, his shoulders, that wasn't surprising, but also around his wrists. He looked down at his hands. Somehow, in the course of the evening's strange events, 
he had acquired a set of tattoos. The dark lines of ink surrounded in tender red. The design was beautiful. Alder leaves running around his wrists. Alders, he said, his voice so dry it was barely more than a croak. Drink, Brick, Gowan said. I don't know if I can keep it down, he admitted. Just try. The first sip of water tasted sour, and he almost spat it out entirely. But he managed to swallow it and only sputtered a little bit. As he sipped the water, he watched figures move about them. The other nights. But they seemed like figments, like shadows in the morning light. Sorry, I'm feeling a bit poorly, Brick said. Gowan said, It's all right. You did well, Brick. Very well. We can sit. The knight helped Brick down to ground level, then sat down beside him. His boots were muddied, strange considering there was little rain or water in these parts, but Brick didn't ask. He had other pressing issues to attend to at the moment. The knight smiled and then, looking at Brick's wrists, said, So, Alders, I? Can you tell me a little more? I know it's difficult, but the visions won't last long. You'll soon forget. Brick nodded wordlessly, taking deep, even breaths. He couldn't imagine it would be difficult to forget. It was practically seared on the insides of his eyelids. I'm sorry, sir. I don't think but moments of it make any sense. At least, not when I try to put the words together to tell you, he said. Try me, replied the knight, seriously. Brick recounted the dream in short, as best he could. It almost sounded laughable, but the intensity in Gowan's eyes led Brick to continue, even through the more difficult parts. But you're certain she said the elders? Gowan asked after he'd heard the whole story. Positive, Brick said. Alder's gate is what she called it. Gowan shook his head in disbelief again, gnawing at his mustache a moment. He seemed bothered, but amazed. The Alder's gate is, put simply, a line of trees that grows from the Great Island down to the tip of Winterland, rumored to have been planted by King Ferdinand I after the Great Collision's aftermath. It's said they're kept by tenders, purportedly women, who ensure the trees are healthy. Renman knows more than I. He's spoken to some of them. But it's an old story, an old belief, just as the women said to you in the dream. It was once believed that the trees held the very fabric of the world together. He shuffled his weight. Of course, that's the way it's been told. Territories folks, being of a more superstitious sort, planted them in their towns, but that's all what's left these days of any active reverence for the trees. And to my knowledge, there are fewer and fewer every year. Do you think someone might be after the alders? asked Brick. I don't know. Alders are ancient trees, steeped in myth that goes far beyond the Great Collision. Consider the alder for a moment, Brick. For, for some of the more, shall we say, heathen populations, it serves many purposes. Did you know, for instance, that if you cut into an alder, it bleeds red sap, just like blood? I had no idea, Brick said. Don't think I ever had a mind to cut into one. Some of the oldest myths, in fact speak of the first people as alder folk, made from the alders themselves. Perhaps, mused the knight, perhaps something has changed. It's a strange time we're living in, Brickley. Of course, the whole vision could have been a metaphor. We shall see. Should we find out, then? I could speak to Renman, suggested Brick. The knight helped Brick to his feet, and walked with him a few paces, his heavy footfalls punctuated by the light jingle of his spurs. Brick's stomach felt as if he'd just eaten a platter full of dry biscuits and then followed it with cold water. He wanted to curl up into a ball for a few hours and sleep, but there was no time for that. Gowan sighed, looking out to the horizon. For now? No. 
Now we must find answers, and philosophy will have to wait. Where are we headed? asked Brick, a tug of sleep already on his lids. He felt he could sleep a week. North. We're going to sweep through some of the smaller towns, see if we can see exactly what the oak's been up to, if we can't make any sense of it. We've dallied long enough, and Din suspects they will not be kind on their account of us. Brick's strength was returning, but he still couldn't shake the disorientation. How do you mean? Brick asked. If the Oak get to Hartley first, they'll tell their side of the story, I suspect. The Order of the Asp, instigating civilian violence, and the rest? He sighed wearily. We are not well loved, and many of us fear it will have been a final blow to our reputation. Comforting, said Brick then, looking around. Where's Mesmer and Renman? Gowan took his time to answer, waving a greeting to Sir Kelper before saying, They should be back soon. I expected he might be out this long. Out? The knight indicated the nearby ridge of rock, back from where you were. I was all the way up there? Brick asked. The climb looked far from easy, through crags and loose rock. He doubted he'd be able to make the trek even with a normal mind, let alone his recent state. What in God's name was in that stuff I drank? Redmond won't divulge his recipe, I'm quite sure, Gowan said. But whatever it is, it sloughs away the layers between this world and the unseen. You've done it? Aye. More times than I can count. I'm not sure I'd like to again. You may yet. Things change. Brick took a final breath that was between a sigh and a groan and looked past Gowan to the mountains. He wasn't certain what he'd gotten himself into, what he'd just promised knowingly, and as Gadwin said before, even unknowingly. He shivered, then noticed two figures approaching, one tall and one short, both just as skinny. It was Redman and Mesmer. Gowan took notice as well and said, Well then, I suppose we'll be off soon. Anything I can get you, Brickley? Just a moment's quiet, I think, said Brick, closing his eyes. That's it. Two days of riding had given Brick plenty of time to think, and that, he decided, was not always a good thing. Back home when he lived and worked in Vell, his life had been so busy, keeping up with the smithing orders and working on Professor's tinkerings, that he'd never had much time to himself. What time he found, he tried to spend it with Cora, and sometimes with her sister Denna. Time was not spent in thought. He didn't need to think. Thoughts were useless for an underclass blacksmith's son. But now? Thoughts riddled his mind calling out from the darkest corners. He had his initiation to thank for that, but even more, it was Barnett. The day before, they'd ridden through the little town and found nothing but a killing field where a town once stood. At least eighty dead, they counted. Every last soul, every living creature, eradicated. They had buried what dead they could, but it was still overwhelming, even for the more seasoned knights. Renman, in particular, was most disturbed. It's possible that the oak came through, he said, bending down, looking into the eyes of a dead woman. But that was not all. This is darker stuff still. Some of the corpses had no wounds. Brick couldn't help but wonder, had it been like this in Vell too? Had some black seed craft wiped out his friends, cast them aside like dried leaves? He still held out hope that the Greys and Professor hadn't been killed by the Oaks Guard. As they went through the townships, it was clear that Barnett and Vell were exceptions. 
Most townspeople had simply turned over their daughters and sisters, wishing them the best on their way to Queensland, hoping to see them again. They seemed surprised and skeptical of any wrongdoing of the Order of the Oak. And the further north they rode, the more clear it became that the territory's folks didn't particularly care for the Asps so much. The Order of the Oak, they could tolerate. They were right proper knights. But the Asp, with their mismatched garb, wind-blown hair, and more than unusual practices... But then... Brick could see their point. Din always tried to explain the situation to the sheriffs, but they refused to let the asp in. Oh, they could camp on the outskirts of town if needs be. They would not outright refuse the knights the proper welcome they were entitled. A few of the sheriffs, the aldermen were all conspicuously absent at moot, had sent out baskets of cheese, grain, and dried fruit. As they progressed further north, Gnarled roots and trees gave way to hardy alders in the wetter conditions, and sprawling cedars and pines, too. Over the last day, Brick had watched the landscape blossom. The air was moist here, and he could smell something heady and salty that Gowan had said was the sea. Sir Gowan and Brick were in the process of reorganizing Gowan's extensive collection of knives. He had found his jerkin and boots could not accommodate the dozen-odd knives he carried with him at all times and Brick had just suggested retrofitting the inside of one of his boots to better suit their needs. They were all waiting for the return of Lark and Sir Gresham. The Asp had not yet set up camp, but they had tethered their horses and set up a fire or two so Renman could attend to cooking, and the posse could rest. They all looked up expectantly at Din, but her face showed no emotion behind her dark lenses. Brickley? Uh, yes, sir? Brick responded. Gowan had been talking, and Brick had missed whatever the loquacious gentleman had said. It was difficult keeping up with him. Gowan joked that being raised among so many bards had rendered him as chatty as a squirrel. Squirrels, he had then explained, were little black rodents that lived in trees on moor, that hoarded their food and chittered. Brick had a hard time imagining Gowan the red giant as a small black rodent, but he nodded anyway. Gowan pointed to the fire, and then beyond. News! cried a voice, rising above the group. It was not as hot as it had been the day before, but Brick was still weary. He had hoped to sit down and relax a few ticks before heading out again, but by the shuffling and muttering among the group, he had a feeling otherwise. News, said Mesmer, who was suddenly at Brick's shoulder. I hear it's bad. Two riders approached. It was Gresham and Lark. They held something in their hands, bundled papers. Lark raised her eyebrows and smiled at Brick as she dismounted, and he couldn't help but smile stupidly back. She was pretty in her own way, but part of him couldn't help but wonder what it would be like to kiss her, to hold her, and then to enjoy her. From what he could tell, it wasn't altogether uncommon among the knights to enjoy each other's company. It was well known that Din and Renman, for instance, slept in the same tent, and Brick was fairly sure that Sir Kelper and Gresham fancied one another. Gresham was chewing on a piece of straw and muttering to himself. "'Hate to be the harbinger of all this shit,' he said, holding out a bundle of paper to Din. The captain took the papers and rifled through them, then launched into a series of rather colorful descriptions. Lark passed out more copies of the paper. We were able to get quite a few from one of the shopkeepers who saw us, said he was told to be rid of them, but thought we should know. "'Why would he be loyal to us?' asked Gowan. Seems it's hardly the trend these days. He said his brother was rescued by one of us years back, Gresham answered. He was caught by smugglers, and we brought him back. Well, mostly, at least. I gathered he lost an eye. But no matter, the shopkeeper thought we should know. 
Gowan opened the edition and read and squinted. He straightened, then huffed, then frowned deeply. How long's this been out? asked Sir Kelper, wiping his hands down the side of his face in disbelief. We don't know, but the shopkeeper explained that there were wires about the incident in Vell pretty much the day after. Den was right. The oak got their word in first, and it spread like wildfire, said Lark, frowning deeply as well. And right well they should, thundered Gowan, throwing down the paper. Bastards! Right bastards! All of them! Brick picked up the paper and opened it to the page Gowan had been reading. It was familiar, the territory's messenger, the very publication Cora had taught him his letters with. His reading was still painfully slow, but he was able to make out the gist of the article. Essentially, it was about the decline and fall of the Order of the Asp, and their failure to keep the territory safe in the last few months, citing a number of coy dog attacks, abductions, and shady characters, including a picture of Gowan that looked nothing like him, dark-haired, deep-eyed, and bearded. The conclusion pointed to the fact that the territory's folks ought not, not to trust a gang of ruffians to their safety and instead look to more reputable orders, like the Oak, of course, and their own law. It gets worse, Lark said to Brick, now that Gowan was stomping around the horses, muttering to himself. The news about Barnett and Vell preceded us, but we didn't get to tell the story. So their version, well... They say we burnt the place to the ground. Gresham said, that we abducted recruits from the Oaks Guard and slaughtered anyone in our paths. Why did none of the towns make mention of this? asked Gowan, returning again to the conversation, albeit a few shades redder than before. Seems many of a mind like the shopkeeper we met tonight, said Gresham. They've been ordered to let the Oaks Guard deal with us unless we take arms against them. I reckon that's why they gave us food and water. We've done help too many of them. He paused to suck on his teeth, considering. But that don't mean we're safe. Not one bit. I have a feeling the oak knows more than we're, where we're going. And it won't end well. Not if they can help it. Gowan checked his guns experimentally, making sure they were loaded before replacing them in their holsters. Well, we better take a small party first, said Din. Gowan, Brickley, Lark, Gresham, you four. Go north first. Let's not all step into a trap if we can help it. If they're waiting for us, we won't be far behind. But I don't want to risk the whole company on account of this. I got a bad feeling. Like lass in my hair. I can't shake it. Alderpod is written and produced by Natanya Barron. Thanks again for stopping on by. Remember, you can always join in the conversation online at aldersgatecycle.com or aldersgatecycle.wordpress.com. 